Good morning. It is great to be back with you all, and happy Thanksgiving. Hope you all have a great week this week, celebrating with family and friends. Um, I want to open up this morning with a question. What are we doing here? Have you ever wondered that? Like, seriously, like, right now, what are we doing here? I mean, maybe multiple answers come through your mind. Maybe it's like, well, we came to sing songs. Taylor Swift came out with a new album. It hit, like, all the records that could be broken. She broke them. And people gathered to sing songs. So are we doing anything different than that? You know, maybe you're here because, well, Andy, you're going to share some knowledge on us, hopefully. But there are people that gather to hear motivational speakers. You can go and listen to people. What is it that we are doing here? Why is it that we come together every week? Because we don't just go to like one concert, like we gather together weekly. And if you go through the Bible, I mean, I believe one of the reasons, it's, it's not a simple one-word answer other than Jesus, but I believe that we come together so that we can live out the one and others. You know, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encourage one another and do so all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we gather together to encourage one another. We gather together to do what Craig just guided us through, to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. We gather together to, as Peter said in John chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have tasted and we have seen that you are the Holy One of God. And so, God, who else are we going to go to? We come to grow in our relationship with God, to grow in our knowledge of God, to grow in our, our just love for him together. Because it's like, well, can't I do that in a deer stand? Possibly. But we come to do it together. You should be doing it every single day on your own. Waking up, and as the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. Every day, waking up and being like, God, I need you today. But we gather together to encourage, to spur on, to remind, sometimes to rebuke, to hold each other accountable. Because the thing is, is that what we are doing this morning is special. It is so special. To be able to come together and worship God openly. I mean, that we can do it without any fear of anybody breaking through these doors and hauling us off. Where we have brothers and sisters overseas who don't have that luxury, but yet they're still saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? The government's telling us don't gather. We're going to gather. We're going to gather in basements. We're going to gather in homes. We're going to gather in quiet and encourage each other and remind each other this is who God is. And this is who you are living for. That as William Wallace said, you can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom found in Christ. And so we gather to do that. Because here's the thing. We are not the only religion that believes in Jesus. Did you know that? I mean, our, our belief in Jesus doesn't really set us apart. Now, hold on. Some of you might be like, whoa, heresy. I'll explain. But just saying that we believe in Jesus does not really set us apart from other religions. I was surprised at how many other religions actually believe in Jesus. Here's, here's 
the different views that there are. Obviously, there's Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, and so you have Judaism. They believe Jesus was born of Mary. They believe that Jesus was a teacher. Therefore, he had disciples. He was well-respected. He worked miracles. They're not even going to refute the miracles that he worked. They believe he claimed to be the Messiah. They believe he was crucified, and then they believe his followers claim that he rose from the dead. But they don't really believe in that. Then you even have Islam. The Muslims, they believe this. They believe he was born of a virgin. They believe he is to be revered. They believe he is a prophet. He is a wise teacher. He worked miracles. He ascended to heaven, and he will return again. And if you're not super, like, critical reading into that, you could be like, oh, sounds like Christianity, kind of. But it's wrong. Hindus, they believe he was a holy man, they believe he was a wise teacher, and they believe he is a god. Buddhists believe kind of the same thing. He's an enlightened man, he's a wise teacher, he's a holy man. There's this new movement called the New Age Movement, and they think, yeah, he existed. We have historical accuracies of Jesus actually walking on this earth outside of the Bible. Secular accounts of Jesus. And so even this new age movement is like, yeah, he was a good moral teacher. We believe that if you actually apply what he says, then you could be a better person and the world would probably be a better place. So he is a good moral teacher. Then you have the Mormons. They believe he is a God receiving status through living a good moral life. So he came, he lived a moral life, and just like we can, he ascended into Godship. Just kind of like if you read in a Mormon Bible, John 1, 1, it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That he's not God, but he's a God. They also believe that he was conceived in a physical relationship with God and Mary. And so some of those, as you're looking through it, it's like, oh, they're actually not very far off. But the thing is, if you miss by an inch, you miss by a mile. Because Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And we need to know who Jesus is. And it, it, it leads this kind of this, um, just to take a moment real quick and share, you're going to have questions after this sermon probably. Because I got questions after this sermon. And I don't have the answer. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at who Jesus is, because Jesus is fully man and fully God. And we open with this because that's the, the question that is really struggled with. A lot of people don't have a difficult time seeing, oh yeah, there is a God. There, there, there's a higher being out there. God exists. They, they believe in that. And then we see a lot of people are like, yes, there is a man that walked on this earth named Jesus, and he was a good moral teacher. He had some really great things to say, and yeah, people should probably live by them. But then we get to the hard part, where we start saying Jesus is fully man, but Jesus is God. And it's like, what? And I agree. What? Like, explain that. I can't, but we're going to try. Because the great thing is, is that God gives us his word and he does a lot of the explaining for us. So I'm just going to be honest this morning is going to be like drinking through a fire hydrant. It's just going to so try and suck in what you can 
and then listen to it again and then study it if you want because I had a blast looking into this. But I, I hope that through this, God speaks to you. So uh, we're going to just go to him in prayer real quick and ask him for clarity on this message. So if you'll join me as we open up for that, and if you'll just, I'm going to give a moment of silence. If you'll just pray for your own hearts, that you will open them up to what God has to say. And then I ask if you'll also take a moment to pray for me as the vessel that God is using to deliver his word, that it be clearly delivered. And God, we're so grateful to be able to gather together. And God, that you have given us your word and, and God, that you are good and you can be trusted. And so I just pray that as we get ready to hear what you have to say about this thing called the Trinity, God, may it be your words that come out of my mouth and may it fall on our hearts so that we can learn more about you and that we can just fall more in love with you and therefore live our lives for you in worship. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I mentioned it already. There's this thing called the mystery of godliness, and that's where I'm going to put this, what is the Trinity? There's like things that we know for sure, and then there's the, these things that we may not necessarily be able to answer this side of eternity, and I'm going to put this in that box. Of There is a mystery of godliness. Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. There is this mystery to godliness. The writer of Proverbs tells us it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search them out. And so, yes, we search, we dive into God's word, we seek him out, but sometimes we're still left to just be like, God, my brain is like this big, and your universe is so much bigger, and I can't comprehend it. I'm just going to trust you. But the question was asked, so we're going to try and tackle it. What is the Trinity? Whatever I say, whatever analogy you might hear, like some people are like, oh, the Trinity is an egg. You have the shell, the yolk, and the white. And they're three separate parts, but they make up one egg. That's the Trinity. I say that falls short. It's like, oh, the Trinity is like water. It's solid liquid gas. It's three separate things, but it's always water. Falls short. I heard the other day, the Trinity is like a ice cream birthday cake. I'll let my wife explain that one to you. She got an A plus on that grade. I think it's because she brought sweets to class, but uh, I don't even remember. I was like, ice cream birthday cake. It falls short. I love you. She has the degree in uh, theology, but... <laughs> I'll pay for that one later. Um, anyways, whatever theory we come up with is going to fall short. But what is the Trinity? The Trinity is this Christian doctrine that explains these three aspects of God, but yet saying they are one. You will never find the word Trinity in the Bible. So if you go to a Bible search and you look up the word Trinity, it's not going to be found in there. 
But instead, we see it in verses really clearly, Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have three aspects of God. And so he tells us there's three persons, but he's also saying they're all God. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Very beginning words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now notice that word God. It's a Hebrew word that is Elohim, which is the plural of the word Eloi or Eloha. Not Eloha, Eloha. Hawaii, Hebrew, close enough. Anyways, it is the plural. Notice that. It's the plural. So what Moses is saying right away, right from the very beginning, he is saying, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. God. Not one, but plural. God in the plural form created the heaven and the earth. Keep going. Verse 2. You have Moses again saying, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So right away we see two. We see there is God the Father. We already know it's in plural sense. And everybody says, yes, God existed from the beginning of time. But you see that now we have two. We have God and we have the Spirit of God. Going on to verse 26 of chapter 1, notice what God says. God says, let us, plural, not let me, because I am the only one, but let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Who is he talking about? It can't be the angels, because God and the angels are not equal. And so God is saying, let us make man in our image, the plural God, Elohim. So we see that since the beginning, God has existed in a plural form. And we have God and we have the Holy Spirit. And now jump over to John chapter 1 and you see the third person in the Trinity. You see where John says, in the beginning, same words as Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And then he goes on, in the beginning was the word. So we already know, according to Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning, God existed. And now John is saying, in the beginning was the word. And he says, the word was with God. And the word was God. The word was there in the beginning. So now we know that we have God the Father, we have God, the Holy Spirit, and now we have this third aspect, the Word. Well, what is the Word? Is that like God saying, let there be light, and He spoke a Word, and the Word, out of the Word came creation? No, because what we find out in John chapter 1, as we continue on, is that the Word is a being, a person, because verse 2, He Okay, so now we know that the word is somebody. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. 
full of grace and truth. Okay, we still know it's a person. Who is this person? And I know you all know the answer to this. I just had fun, like, Sherlock Holmesing all this stuff. So I want to share it. John 1.17 tells us, so we already know the word is a person. The word is full of grace and truth. And then 17 tells us the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So now we get to see who the word is. The word is Jesus. So you have in the beginning, God, plural, created the heavens and the earth. The spirit hovered over the earth. And then Jesus, the word, was there in the beginning. And he was with God, and he is also God. And so at creation, you have all of it. God did not create Jesus. You know, we kind of have this, um, okay, maybe not we, but as you kind of grow up, your maturity and your understanding starts to grow. Because I remember mine used to be, you had God flowing all the way until Matthew chapter 1. And then the Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary. And then that is the beginning of Jesus. Like when I was younger. It's like, when did Jesus arrive? At Matthew chapter 1. Well, John just told us Jesus has been there from the very beginning. That he has no beginning and no end. Before time existed, Jesus is there. God the Father is there. The Holy Spirit is there. So we have three different gods, but now it gets really confusing. They're three different, they're one. We have one God. I can't explain it. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four tells us, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, Moses in Deuteronomy six, four, the Lord, our God, Elohim, plural. He's saying our plural God is one. Behold, Israel, the Lord, our God is one. Paul reiterates this in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. That we serve one God that is comprised of three persons, but they are one. You know, it's like, okay, so Jesus isn't God. He's just that mediator, right? And it's like, that would be wrong. He is God. I'm confused right now, if I'm honest. My mind cannot comprehend it. That God can be three separate beings, but be one. And I'm going to leave it to him at that. But what we do know is that the Father is God. God the Father is God. John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus is telling us, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. You know, there's, there's this thing that, that's really not that hard of a struggle for us to, to, to grasp or that hard of a concept for us to grasp. You, you talk to people. I found this stat. Pew Research in 2017, they surveyed 4,000 Americans. They found out 56% of the 4,000 that they surveyed believed that there is a God and that he is the God of the Bible. 56% believe in that. 33% believe in some higher power. 
that it may not actually be the God of the Bible, but that there is a God out there. And only 10% said they didn't believe in God at all. That was in 2017, 4,000 people studied. But it's like a lot of people are able to be like, yes, there is a God out there. The Muslims believe in Allah. They believe there is a God out there. The Jews believe there is a God out there. The next part is where a lot of people start to struggle. Because we're even told that the cornerstone is the stumbling stone. That Jesus is what caused so many people to stumble. Because Jesus is God. Not a God. Not a moral teacher. But he is God. Five times in the book of John, Jesus uses this statement. I am. Seven times he follows it up in a different sense. So five separate times he says, I am. Seven other times he says, I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says that, but five times he uses this word, I am. We see it in John chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus said to them, he's walking out on the water. They're terrified. They're like, it's a ghost. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. It is I. Also translated, I am. John chapter 18, verse 5. This is probably my favorite part where Jesus says this. He's, they come to him. Jesus of Nazareth, because Jesus is like, who is it that you are seeking after? They're coming to arrest him. He says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. John chapter 8, we have this account. The Jews answered Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I was to say to you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So there's just three of the times where Jesus is using this phrase, I am. Notice in that last one what their response to him is. Like they're unhappy with him up to this point. And then they're like, wait a minute, you're, you're not even 50 and yet you're saying that you've seen Abraham. And he's like, you, actually, before Abraham even existed, I am. And they're like, oh, let's stone this man. Why? Why would they try and stone him over that? Because 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, one of the Ten Commandments, it tells us, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16 tells us, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. So because Jesus said, I am, they're ready to stone him. Because he is taking the name of the Lord. And they're like, whoa. It says nobody shall take the name of the Lord in vain. You just said you are him. You are God. You deserve to be put to death. You should be stoned. Because in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, we see where this word I am comes from. When Moses is about to be sent out to free the Israelites from Egypt, and Moses is like coming up with every excuse that he can come up with. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You don't even have a name. Who is it that I should say sent me? And God responds to him, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. That I am is in the Hebrew, it's H-Y-H, which has now been like translated to be Yahweh or Jehovah. And the Jews took this name seriously. Like so much so that they would not say God. They would write it out G-D or L-R-D. They would not do the O because they would not run the risk of defaming the name of God. And here you have Jesus saying, I am. I am God. He leaves no room for us to be like, you know what, Jesus is a good moral teacher. Jesus is a man that walked on this earth and he taught some good things and he died a horrible death. But he's not God. Jesus didn't leave room for that. C.S. Lewis, I've read this multiple times, but I love it. It's his trilemma found in mere Christianity where he says this. He says, I don't want anyone saying the foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left room for that. And we see that in those areas. Because if he was a great moral teacher, then he lies. That's not a great moral teacher. He's claiming to be God. That's not a great moral teacher. So we either say he is just downright crazy. We say he's a liar in which how can we trust him? Or we realize that when he says I am, he is who he says he is. That he is God. And that's actually why the Jews wanted to kill him. It wasn't for the miracles that he was doing. It wasn't because he was working on the Sabbath, even though they did not like that. John chapter 5 verse 18 says that they sought ways to kill him because he called God his own father. And he was making himself equal with God. 
That's why they started to seek out ways to kill him. Because he said, as my father is, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Do not be afraid because I am God. God in your presence. Emmanuel. When they come and tell Mary what her baby's name is going to be, they say you shall call him Jesus. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came to dwell among us. So we have the Father is God. We have Jesus is God. And then we have the Holy Spirit is God. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3 through 4, the, the first church is just growing. And amazing things are happening and people are selling all of their property and coming and giving it to the church because they believe so much in the mission of the church. And as they're doing that, there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They see it and they want that notoriety, but they also want some of their possession. So they sell a plot of land and they bring only a little bit of it, but they say, this is all that we have sold. And so Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, you've lied to God. How did Peter open up that part? By saying, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, if you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God because the Spirit is God. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple? And who lives in us? The Holy Spirit resides in you. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. So this is a popular image that goes around if you like look for the Trinity. This is the best way they can explain it. You have on each point of the triangle, you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In the brackets, you have the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But all the lines point to the middle, and God is in the middle. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They're not the same, they're different, but they're one. We'll leave it at that. The last thing that we'll close with here is they do serve different roles. That they don't all do the same thing. I mean, I, I feel like um, the, the closest, again, all analogies are going to fall short really bad. But I'm going to tell you one anyways. The one that I can think of is marriage. Where it says that the two shall become one. And the two are equal. But yet God's word tells us there are different roles in a marriage. He says that the father is the head of the house, just as Christ is the head of the church. But that does not mean that the wife is any lesser, any weaker, any less important. Because notice Jesus submitted to the father and the spirit submits to both the father and the son. But yet they're all the same. They're all one, but they have different roles. God, the father. He is the creator. He is the ruler of all things. He is the one that we live to glorify. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. For us, there is one God, the Father, 
from whom are all things and for whom we exist. One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we have that all things exist for God through Jesus. Isaiah 43, verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God the Father is the creator. He is the source from which everything comes. He is also the giver of salvation. John 3.16 tells us this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God gave his only Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God the Father is the creator, the ruler, and the giver of salvation. Jesus, the Son, is the source of that salvation. Jesus has already told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. John 3.16 told us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the image of God that we see. Nobody has ever seen God, John 1.18 the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.15, continuing on, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the source of salvation. We receive eternal life through faith in Jesus. And then he is how we see God. And then lastly, we have the Holy Spirit. Is the, the power of God working through his people. Just start reading through the book of Acts. And you're going to see the Holy Spirit is going to fill God's people and power is going to come upon them. We see this initially in Acts 2. The day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances couple chapters later, it says they prayed and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Romans 15, 13, Paul prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit in you or in you may bound in hope. The Holy Spirit is also God in you. The Spirit comes. Jesus actually says in John, I must go so that one greater than I can come. It will be to your benefit that I leave. 
so that the Spirit can come and reside in you. Jesus was in one physical location. The Holy Spirit resides in each and every single believer globally. He lives in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The Spirit dwells in you. And then lastly, he's our intercessor with God. That in those times where you are just pouring your heart out to God, and it's like, God, I don't even know what to say. We have an intercessor who is speaking on our behalf. Romans, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we see who God the Father is, who Jesus the Son is, who the Holy Spirit is. They are all God and they are all working for us. And the Spirit is working in and through us. And that is just a drop in the bucket. I mean, like we could do a series upon series of these aspects. But it's a glimpse of who God is. But here's what we know for sure. As much as I still have questions about this stuff and like, yeah, but how can this and that? I don't know. But what I do know is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That God gave his son, but Jesus also tells us in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I give it freely. I lay it down for you. You see, there's going to be a day where I'll have answers to all of this, where I'll be standing in the presence of God and it'll be like, I get it now. And I can hold on to the hope of that, no matter what this life throws at me, because of those verses, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that Jesus willingly laid his life down as my sacrifice, the penalty I was supposed to pay so that I can have eternal life. When we find life in Jesus, you see, there's going to become times where we give our life to Jesus and then it's like, man, I fell short again this week. I failed God this week. But we're told that when we give our life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into us. As Craig told us, this is the blood of his new covenant. And that new covenant is that he is going to give his spirit to us. That his spirit lives inside of us. So we find life in that. So that, according to Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, we can have confidence that we will stand before God, the Father, seeing Jesus in all his glory and I'm pretty sure the Spirit's going to be there too, and it'll all make sense then. But right now, I'm holding on 
to Jesus, where we're told to have the same mindset as him, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human likeness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of that, someday we will see face to face. As Paul says, now we see dimly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And we will be able to be there as John says in Revelation, our last verse. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Father God, there's, there's so much depth to this that God, I just pray that through all of that, your word was proclaimed and that it fell on the hearts of your people that we see who you are, that you gave your only son to die the death that we were supposed to die. But not just living the perfect life as a fully man, but as the perfect God as well. And God, there's, there's a dichotomy there. There's, there's a, a struggle that my little brain cannot comprehend, but I pray that your truth resounds through it all, that you are worthy of our lives, that you are worthy of everything that we have to give to you so that therefore we are not conformed to the patterns of this world, but that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we offer our lives as living sacrifices, which is our true and proper worship. God, help us do that. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen.